Thanks, Eric. Well, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening. Whenever uh, you are joining us, it is good to be with you in worship today. My name is Abby Odio. I am the pastor of teaching and formation here at Bethany Green Lake. And today we are continuing in our series from the book of Joel, focusing on these beautiful and deeply hopeful words from Joel chapter two that Eric just read for us. So I'll invite you uh, to join me in prayer now as we prepare our hearts and our minds to look at God's word together. Jesus, uh, you find us in this moment um, and we continue to carry a lot. God, we are some days grateful, some days overwhelmed, some days anxious, some days fearful, some days joyful. God, from one day to the next in these times, all bets are off. And yet the thing that remains true is that you are indeed God and you are indeed good and you are indeed with us. So I pray in these moments together today that your word would speak to us, that it would shape us, that it would guide us, but that it would comfort us, that it would restore to our hearts a vision of hope as we go about our days in this week. Jesus, speak to us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to begin by uh, sharing with you a little story today. Many of you know that Halloween rolled around not too long ago. And uh, as the night uh, came near, uh, my husband Sam and I weren't sure if we should do this trick-or-treating thing. Like, is it still happening? We have young kids. Um, We knew they were excited about it, but uh, we wanted to be safe. So we decided if We just kind of skipped this year. It wouldn't be a big deal. But then in the 11th hour, it was a beautiful night out. So we we changed our minds and we threw the kids in their costumes and we said, you know what, let's just go around our little block. And so we did. And I have to tell you, we ended up having nothing short of the most fun that our little family has had in 2020. Because of uh, the safety concerns with COVID, our neighbors went above and beyond in making this particular Halloween joyful and safe and memorable. Uh, our neighbor, one neighbor delivered candy on a zip line that he literally attached to a clothespin at his front porch and then like sent it down the zip line right into my son's candy bag. Other neighbors shared their gifts of music, playing instruments as we passed by. Other neighbors sat outside at a safe distance just to kind of say hello and check in and make conversation. Other neighbors included handwritten words of encouragement in these huge bags of candy that they left outside. I'm telling you, you all should move to West Seattle. It was amazing. And uh we have these neighbors next door. They know we have young kids. And when we came home, they'd actually actually delivered these like personalized treats for each of them and a nice little IPA for Sam and I. It was a delight. So when the night was over, uh, my husband and I looked at each other and just with all honesty and surprise said, that was the best night. Like our cups were um, unexpectedly sort of overflowing. We were joyful. We were content. We had lots of candy to steal from our children. 
Now, I share that story because if you've been worshiping with us these past several weeks, you'll know that one of the core themes of Joel is this notion that in the midst of trial and pain and disruption, that's a word we've used a lot, and weariness, God is bringing about something new, a way of existing for God's people that that more rightly aligns with God's will and intention and heart for humanity. Joel is speaking to Israel in this time of great distress because their land has been scourged by a plague of locusts. Now, that language of locusts may be difficult for us to imagine in our day, but it implies the swarm of bugs that has grown so significantly in size, there are 80 million in a square kilometer. And um, because of that, uh, they can, these pests, 80 million of them, they can eat up to the equivalent of 35,000 people in just a single day. Imagine that moving into your neighborhood. This is what Judah has undergone. It's a major disruption. They're taking the food. There's a major famine. People have reached their limit. We know from the language that the prophet uses that this disruption has lasted for not, day, uh, not days, not weeks, but multiple years. On and on and on. Sound familiar? We've been in our own global and national disorientation and disruption for nine months now. And many of us are feeling that same sense. Many of us are feeling that we've reached our limit and then some. And now the holidays are approaching and COVID cases are back on the rise and and we're weary. All of that end, we head into this another week of sort of this political drama and limbo. And if, if you're like me, you're watching the news, but not too close because it can all just feel like this tidal wave, like this, this overwhelming surge in our hearts and our minds. And that brings us to our timely text for today in which Joel is speaking about the promises of God, encouraging God's people to see them with greater clarity in light of the disruption that is all around them. The theologian Walter Brueggemann says, part of the role of the prophet is to, quote, practice hope in the face of despair by promise telling. To practice hope in the face of despair by promise telling. And this, this is precisely what Joel does. And as a result, God's people stand on the other side of disruption, coming through this terribly difficult season. And like Sam and I on our front porch on that Halloween night, their cups are unexpectedly full. They stand having endured tremendous pain, yet also having received and understood the promises of God in this entirely new and powerful and real way that they would not have understood years before. And so today we dive into this text, taking a deeper look at those promises. And they are the promise of a healed heart, the promise of a healed land, and the promise of healed time. The promise of a healed heart, the promise of a healed land, and the promise of healed time. See, the first verse of our text today, verse 18, reads this way. It says, the Lord became jealous for his land. That word jealous in Hebrew, it also translates as zeal. It implies this energetic and passionate commitment to a particular outcome despite any and all obstacles. I read that definition and I think of Pete Carroll in the fourth quarter of a Seahawks game, right? The Seahawks are inevitably down and Pete has his mask off flying in the wind, right? We're all like, put the mask back on. It's a lot of money. 
And rarely do you think, even given all that, that they're going to lose because Pete's got zeal, man. Like Pete is committed to the outcome and we know it and we are with them. See, our text of promise begins today with this reminder that God is utterly, energetically, passionately committed to keeping the promises that he's made to his people, to upholding his end of the covenant, come what may. So we begin with this zealous promise of a healed heart, a healed heart. If we turn our attention back to the text, you'll notice that in verse 19, God speaks through the prophet and says, I am sending you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. Now to fully understand the implication of this particular gift that God gives in the form of grain and wine and oil We must return uh, to the very first chapter of Joel, where in verses 9 and 10, we read that these are the very same items that were destroyed when the locusts first invaded. Joel writes this in chapter 1, The fields are devastated, the ground mourns, for the grain is destroyed, the wine is dried up, the oil fails. Now, without sort of a robust understanding of Israel's way of life, it's easy to just read those words and the significance of those three items can be lost on us, the grain, the wine, and the oil. But it's important to note that in the time of the Old Testament, the way God lived in relationship with his people was through the temple. The temple was sort of this visible presence of God's residence, of God's dwelling, of God's nearness. And a a crucial part of this relationship was the offering of sacrifices in the temple, and in particular, animal sacrifices. Now, again, especially if you're sort of new on this journey of faith, uh, the notion of animal sacrifices can seem totally strange and kind of weird and freaky, and that's very fair. But what we have to understand is that in the ancient world, blood symbolized purity across many different cultures. And so this ritual of sacrifice in the temple symbolized the cleansing of the misguided and unjust ways of every human heart. We all have that in us. And in order um, that they could commune with God who is perfect and just, people would make these sacrifices. See, the temple was this place of community, of fullness, of comfort. It's how people experience a tremendous grace and compassion and love and union with God. Now, why is that relevant? Well, keeping that in mind, we come back to these three gifts, the grain, the wine, and the oil. In Exodus chapter 19, we read where God offers instruction on how they are to make these sacrifices. He essentially says, give one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening, and with each lamb offer this as well, grain and wine and oil. See, what happens in Joel chapter 1, when the locusts destroy these things, they also destroy the way, the means of communion between God and his people. For Israel, it's not just about the food. For Israel, this is a great tragedy. They're not feeling God the way they once did. They're not seeing God the way they once did. And so in our text today, when God says through the prophet Joel, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, what God is really saying is this, I'm here, I'm with you. 
the tragedy and pain and the loneliness you've endured, though very real, cannot and will not outlast my zeal, my commitment to your enduring good, my vision for creation when I first brought you into being. The locust can't touch that. And it's this renewed sense of communion with God, this relationship that becomes for Israel the source of their deep satisfaction and their healed heart. It's this promise that says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll keep being with you. If you were here last week, you know that Pastor Richard preached on those words Joel speaks when he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's a very strange invitation. What does it mean to rend one's heart? Well, to rend something is kind of this really intense way of saying to tear or to, to divide or to detach And in the ancient world, the heart was a person's core. It was believed that all of a person's functioning sort of flowed from the heart. And so when God says to Israel, rend your hearts, what he's really saying is take an honest look at your very core. What motivates your life? What's the source of your fear? Who in this moment today do you trust? And then God says, rend your heart from that. Detach your heart from that. And that action, that detachment, it positions us for this promise of chapter two, which is the abundance of God, relationship with God, the ability to see God who has been there with clarity. Just over a week ago now, as you all know, we had our national and local elections. And on that Tuesday morning, I was uh, working on writing a weekly global practice for our uh, global monastery weekly spiritual practice for our global monastery. Um, And the practice I happened to be working on was that of silence. So it's this idea that every day we take a few moments and we sit just in the quiet uh, to hear God's voice with greater clarity. And as I finished writing out the instructions for this practice, I had this sense that I should actually do it, that I should pause and practice sitting in silence with God. I have to tell you, practices involving silence and stillness and meditation, they are not easy for my wandering mind, but I went ahead and I did it. I set the timer on my phone for 10 minutes. I sat comfortably on the floor. I said this brief prayer, kind of acknowledging God's presence. And then I waited for a moment in the quiet. And not surprisingly, my mind was flooded with all these fears I held around that particular day and the election and outcomes that felt beyond my control. And to be honest, it was terribly overwhelming and uncomfortable and I was tempted to stop right then and there. But then in my mind, I had this picture of God sitting across from me at this table, just kind of in a bubble. Don't ask me what God looked like because I'm not really sure, but I was very aware that God and I were in this space together. And in this sort of bubble, as my fears and anxieties were trying to kind of penetrate it, they would hit the bubble and just sort of disappear. And it was just me and God in this space that I was imagining. I have to be honest, this is not how most of my meditation moments play out. Generally, they are far less holy. But on this day, I was so grateful for that picture. Because as the day went on in my heart, that central part of me was tempted towards a whole lot of other postures, towards fear, bitterness, blame, judgment. As I was tempted to go down that road, I was brought back to this little bubble, this holy space where God so graciously said, no, detach your heart from that. 
Rend your heart from that. Be here instead. Stay with me instead. Receive this oil and this wine and this grain once again. Come into my presence. Be in this temple. And so as we receive God's promises of a healed heart today, one of the essential questions is this, from what do we need to rend our hearts so that we are made available for God's healing and God's deep satisfaction? It's interesting, the prophet Joel is unique in that he does not specifically name what Judah needs to rend their hearts from. The prophet Isaiah names injustice towards the weak and the vulnerable. Hosea and Amos name idolatry and the worship of lesser gods. In the book of Exodus, Moses confronts the people for their ongoing attachment to their past story of mistrust. But Joel remains silent on any of these topics. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us. And I love this because it's as if in his silence, the prophet is saying all of it. <laughs> Anything that your heart has turned to apart from God's promise, rend it, detach it, turn away. And if we fast forward to Jesus's life, we see the same invitation extended time and time again to the religious. He says, rend your judgment, your, your meanness. To Martha, he says, rend your efficiency and your leanings towards perfectionism and performance. To Zacchaeus, he says, rend your bribery, your, your opportunism. All of these things, they've captured your heart. They're driving your behavior and they're empty. And Jesus is, is very clear, but very gracious in this because he knows that oftentimes, friends, the things that capture our heart, they're not born out of maliciousness, but out of our own broken story. They're our own way of surviving in a broken world. And this makes the decision to rend them all the more terrifying because the thing that we're invited to detach from is likely the very thing that was giving us this sense of security, likely the very thing we believed would heal our heart. And the prophet Joel and the person of Jesus, they both invite us time and time again to this sacred space to this proximity, to this relationship to God where we are healed. <laughs> In the midst of all the things going on outside of that bubble. It's what Jesus tells Martha in Luke chapter 10, when her heart is worried about many things, he says, look, you are worried about it all, but only one thing is needed, only one. Grain, wine, oil, Jesus, my presence with you. Indeed, this is where we begin. That brings us to the second promise from Joel chapter two that I want to explore together today, which is this promise of a healed land. In chapter two, verse 21, the prophet says this, do not fear, O soil, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. And then verse 22, do not fear you animals of the field for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and the uh, vine give their full yield. Now, if we pay close attention to uh, this, we notice the prophet after speaking to the people appears to be speaking directly to God's non-human creation, to the soils, to the animals, the pasture and the trees. And this is a bit strange, but it keeps in step with this broader pattern that we see in the Bible, which is simply this, creation often acts like a mere image of the spirituality of its inhabitants. 
Creation often acts like a mere image of the spirituality of its inhabitants. In other words, when hearts are healed, land is healed. When hearts are healed, families and communities and even physical landscapes are healed. We saw it on that wonderful video this morning about the work God is doing along Aurora Commons. And of course, we also know the opposite to be true. We know that when human greed takes root in a heart, land is exploited. The environment suffers. Entire populations of people are displaced or enslaved. We see this in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve entrust their heart to something apart from God. And the immediate effect of this turning of the human heart is the degradation of creation. We see this dynamic at work when God in the Old Testament gives his people two mandates. He says, practice Jubilee and practice Sabbath. Both of which which essentially say this, give the land a break. Like let it rest. If your heart is trusting me, then pause from the work. Trust that I, I will care for you and let the land heal itself. And this is why Joel speaks directly to the land. Don't be afraid because when God's people are satisfied in me, they can stop. They can stop with unchecked consumerism. They can stop with hoarding. They can stop with arrogance and greed and this unquenchable appetite for more. They can be at peace. Joel is essentially saying human care and human justice flow from a healed heart. It's interesting. We're living in a chapter in the United States history where healing of our land is desperately needed. We feel that all around us. We feel it in our families. We certainly feel it across political divisions. Uh, There's this growing awareness of longstanding racial inequality that certainly did not end with, you know, the civil war or with Jim Crow that in the same way many of us were taught, there's the reality that we live and worship on land that was stolen from our Native American sisters and brothers. The land is hurting. And the book of Joel clarifies that the land is not hurting apart from us. The land is hurting because we are hurting. There is division in our nation because we are hurting. And so the most important thing I can do in this season is stay close to God, is stay immersed in scripture that paints a picture of Jesus's way, of Jesus's kingdom, because it's from this place of intimacy and connection and healing that from me will flow justice and love and healing in the places I inhabit. That I will embody humility and peace and listening and reconciliation in whatever land it is that my feet touch. I was reflecting this week on sort of the current state of evangelicalism in our nation and sort of the big C church in America. This is a tradition I grew up in. It's a tradition for which I'm grateful in so many ways. And right now it seems there's this sentiment within American evangelicalism that we have this God-given mandate to protect. Like we got to double down. It's like we're at war with culture, with anyone who would threaten our God-given laws and rights and ways. And I was pondering that this week because when I look at the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, what I don't see is this call to protect or to fight or to double down. Instead, I see this tremendous intimacy and oneness between Jesus's heart and the heart of the father. And that intimacy manifests itself in the literal healing of people, of their bodies and their stories. 
ultimately of lands and of nations. Next week, we'll hear, have the real privilege of hearing from Pastor Moses, who's a Rwandan pastor and a good friend of Bethany. Uh, Pastor Moses has survived a horrific genocide in his country in 1994. And let me tell you, you listen to him speak for any amount of time and it becomes abundantly clear. Healed hearts, heal lands. His country has had to go through a tremendous amount of healing the past several decades and they're doing it and they're doing it faithfully. But let me tell you, it began with the heart of people. God getting the hold of a nation. Friends, God wants to get a hold of our nation. I read this week about a couple named John and Yvonne Presidy. They uh, together co-founded an an organization called Reconciliation Prayer Walks. And to commemorate the 900 year anniversary of um, the Christian Crusades, which happened uh, right right around 2000, uh, they did this prayer walk where they walked along the route of the first crusade And they visited as many mosques and synagogues and Orthodox churches as possible with this simple message, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These sites were primary places of destruction and slaughter by uh, the Western Christian crusades that happened. And this couple carried with them a letter of apology that they read out uh, to each faith leader they encountered in these various spaces apologizing not for the person of Christ, but for the horrendous evil committed in Christ's name. And this group described being met with a combination of disbelief and just warm acceptance as they went along from place to place. I love the story John recalls where he showed up at a synagogue in Bosnia and he'd forgotten to bring with him that little piece of paper where he had the apology written. So he said, you know, can, can I come back um, in about 10 minutes, let me run back to my hotel. And the rabbi looked at him and smiling said, we've waited 900 years for this. 10 minutes more won't make much of a difference. But I love this pattern, healed hearts, healed lands, even 900 years later. I have a good friend who was raised in a terribly abusive home, just unthinkable things happened to him as a child. And when he left at the age of 18, he found Christ through a college faith community. And slowly Christ began to heal his heart and his story. Now, years later, he and his wife serve as foster parents for children in severely abusive situations, healed hearts, healing land, healing communities. There are people in our community who have committed to becoming a zero waste household because they acknowledge that the earth's resources are limited and God has called us to care for the earth. Healed heart, healed land. Friends, I invite you in this moment where so much healing is needed around us to pause and consider the impact of your presence in your family, in your community, in our world, whatever that looks like for you at this season. Are we contributing to the noise in our land or are we bearing witness to news that is indeed good? Does healing and justice and mercy and goodness flow through me to the spaces I inhabit or is it just egotism and defensiveness, consumption, self-preservation? Indeed, when I find that 
that second list is the thing flowing from me. The thing I do is not force myself to behave differently. I don't will myself to simply be a better person. Rather, I acknowledge there's actually something in the core of me. Something is in my heart that's wrongly attached. And then I return to this, this promise of God, always there. Let me heal you. And when I do that from this place of utter security and belovedness, then I become a participant in that beautiful promise, a promise to uh, heal the land, and not just in this metaphorical and poetic way, but in this very real and practical and needed way. Church, God promise, promises to heal and he promises to do it through us. Then finally, that third promise we see in this chapter is the healing of time. The healing of time. If you have your communion elements nearby, uh, bread and wine or bagels and juice, I'd encourage you to um, get those out because we'll use them in just a moment. But in Joel 2.25, the prophet speaks on behalf of God saying, I will repay you for the years the swarming locust has eaten. I will repay you for the years the swarming locust has eaten. The Hebrew word is salam, and it also translates to restore or to make right. Here it says repay, but God in his compassion and goodness doesn't just heal our hearts and our land, but through God's goodness and compassion, his healing is cosmic and it stretches in to space and time. This is perhaps one of the most profound promises of hope we see in all scripture. Even what has been lost will be restored. It's not just about the future friends. It's about all that has been. And this concept can be really difficult for us to grasp because as people, we live and exist within the structure and the confines of time. We know, especially as Americans, time is that precious commodity that you can never get back. This past week, as I was thinking about Joel, I had an experience that sort of helped me to shed light and understand this promise with a bit more clarity. On Monday, uh, we ordered some takeout from one of our favorite spots close to our house. And as I was going to pick it up, I brought with me our oldest son, who's three years old. His name is Mark. And as I was approaching our car just out front of our house to put him inside, about a block away, there were two cars that actually ran into one another. They had a car accident. It's one of those intersections uh, where there are no stop signs, so it can be a little bit treacherous. And um, we were about 50 yards away and we heard the brakes squeal, you know, as they do. And then there was just this loud bang, right? And my son was in my arms and he grabbed onto me and he looked up the street and he was a little bit frightened. And I put him in his car seat and then I shut the door and kind of started to make my way towards the scene to just see if everyone was okay. And I see a police car who must have been in the area because he just rolled right up. And um, so I turned around, I went back to the car and um, I could see the people were kind of getting out. There was one guy who was really angry and he was yelling at the other guy, but I could see everyone was, was moving and, and alive and well. And so I got back into my car and I pulled out of the driveway and we started uh, to pick up our food. And I hear my son in the back seat and he's, he's crying. And I turned around and I said, buddy, are you okay? And he said through his tears, mom, is it okay? Are they okay? Are they okay? I said, yeah, but everyone's okay. There are people there who are going to help them. It was just an accident. It makes sense that you're scared, but you don't have to worry. I saw them. They're all okay. And Mark was reassured for about a minute, but then, you know, 
30 seconds later, he, he started in with that same series of questions. Mom, is it okay? Are they okay? Are you sure they're okay? I said, yeah, buddy, they're okay. I saw them. They're all right. It's going to be okay. And as we drove to get food and back, it's about a 10-minute drive. He probably asked that series of questions about 20 times. Like he couldn't shake this thing from his mind. And what I realized was that all he had seen was the accident. All Mark had heard was this loud screech and this loud bang and voices yelling at each other. See, his, his little mind and his heart didn't have access to this greater story, this broader narrative that I could see where I knew everyone was okay. I knew that someone had shown up to help. See, friends, what we hold in the resurrection life of Christ is access to this greater narrative in a sense where God is launching nothing less than a new order where hearts and land and relationships and yes, even lost time is healed, it's restored. And while we have assurance of that truth, similar to Mark witnessing the car accident, it's a truth that can feel so distant, especially in this times when we look around and all we see are crashes and all we hear are cries. All we see are hurricanes like eating destruction on places and people that we love. All we see is this third wave of the pandemic coming when we've already endured so much. All we see is job loss and loneliness and holidays spent without relatives that we've been looking forward to seeing all year. It's so difficult to see this greater story. And so we're moving through our days asking that same question over and over again. Like, is it okay? Are we going to be okay? If you read through the gospel stories of Jesus's life, one of the things you'll notice is that the resurrection of Jesus happened on the very first day of the week. And it was a Sunday. And so Sunday became the day of worship, the day of resurrection, the day of Easter. But unlike our structures around time for early Christians, Sunday was not a day off. It was like our Monday. It was the the first day of the working week. That said, people in that time, they valued the significance of Jesus's resurrection on that first day so much that they made an extra effort to get up early prior to a long day of work just so that they could worship together. See, worship happening on that first day was so important because it became a sign within this present broken world and its temporal sequence of sorts that the good and healing reality was breaking in. Like it's how we're gonna start our week. It was this reminder that no matter what the coming days and weeks and months held, no matter what challenges or heartaches or injustices or losses they would experience that Jesus is alive. It's the first and truest thing that they reminded themselves of each week that this painful time, it will ultimately be restored. It's a promise that the resurrection offers us that nothing else offers. It was like God looking to the back seat saying over and over again at the start of each week, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I will repay you for the years the swarming locust has eaten. It's okay. And that brings us to this this table, this thing we do together called communion. See, as God's people would gather on that first day of the week, they would eat the bread and they would drink the wine and they would look one another in the faces and they would say, remember, God is a zealous God. 
In other words, God would stop at nothing to fulfill these promises. The Seahawks are going to win. I really hope they're going to win. Even when it meant giving everything he had, including himself, even when time and time again, we attached our hearts to the wrong things. God is zealous. Filling our cup. That there would be life amidst death, love amidst hate, justice amidst violence, hope amidst a pandemic. So friends, as we receive these elements this morning, I'd invite you first to pause and take inventory of your own heart. Is there anything you need to rent? Take a a moment and have a conversation with God about that. And if you're with someone today, I'd encourage you to serve one another the elements, to actually look one another in the face and remind one another of those promises as you do so. God heals your heart. God heals the land. God heals the time. It's okay. If you're worshiping on your own in this moment, I just want to say you are not alone. (laughs) I know it's hard. Your church sees you. We are with you. We pray for you when we gather. But I'd encourage you before receiving the elements to say that promise aloud on your own, wherever you're sitting. God heals my heart. God heals our land. God heals the time. In just a moment, I'll pray for us and I'm going to invite the band back up. I'd encourage you to reflect and then receive the elements as you feel led at any point during this next song. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. And in a like manner, he took the cup and he poured the wine and he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, This wine, this cup, it's a sign. I keep my promises. Come what may, I keep my promises. And often as you gather and you eat this bread and you drink this cup, remember that I am a zealous God. Remember that I am a God who is with you and for you and it is going to be okay. Let's pray together. Jesus, we receive from you your grace in the form of your body and your blood. God, we thank you that in a time, in a moment, in a season when it's so tempting to allow our heart to be driven and grounded in anything and everything else. You are a God who finds us time and time again. You are a God who is true to your word. You are a God that came after us when we could not find our way back to you. And God, we admit in this moment, in this season, it is hard to find you. But we receive now your grace, your love, your satisfaction, your goodness into our bodies, into our hearts, into our lives. May it transform us so that we indeed become healers in partnership with you, healers of the land, healers of the space, healers of our nation. 
God, we're grateful to be your children in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.